Welcome to the Sound Talk podcast. I'm Stephen Kerrison and I run Tall Trees Audio Mastering here in Liverpool. I'm also in Liverpool. I'm also called Stephen and I'm from Watch Studio. <laughs> Sound Talk is a podcast where each episode we, Stephen 1 and Stephen 2, to be decided, will be chatting to a special guest who we respect and admire about their journey into audio, their approach and working practices and all things to do with sound. Today's guest is a producer and musician with a super impressive list of credits to his name. He's worked on Grammy-nominated albums, worked with artists such as Tom Waits, Iggy Pop, Bonobo, Jolie Holland, Elvis Costello and Sparkle Horse, to name but a few, and is also a highly respected musician in himself in his own band, Book of Knots. It's Joel Hamilton. Hi, Joel. Hey, everybody. All of both of you. I'm glad to be here this morning, really, truly. Uh, I think... The opportunity to be here is something that I jumped on right away because of the fact that I just like talking about audio. And so rather than bore my 11-year-old daughter or any of the friends that I've blabbed at for the 10,000th time over dinner, I had an opportunity to jump on with some fellow nerds across the planet and, and, uh, and get into this. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity for a caffeinated rant about whatever, we, whatever it is we're about to get into. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, especially so early in the morning. I mean, no one rocks at eight a.m., do they? The pleasure's ours. Honestly. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen rock at eight a.m. You know, having to play on morning shows and things like that. I think it sort of breaks your sense of when the rock happens. You know, <laughs> having to get there at six a.m. Do I actually get into this right now? Okay, so basically I had to play on the Today Show, which is a, the corniest of the corniest nightmare, you know, like Good Morning America type of show. Yeah. And uh, I think I might even be saying the wrong one. I get all of those crap shows kind of confused. <laughs> the sort of morning smarmy joke shows, you know, I get them confused, <laughs> nor do I watch them. And so anyway, I... Uh, I had to play on them with somebody, with an actor who will remain nameless. And I was playing drums actually in Shaker and, and with my, uh, my significant other at the time. She's in Nora Jones's band and uh, she was at the time and they have a band together and all of this. And we, we went on and played uh, and, and Howie Mandel, do you know who that is? This comedian from like the 80s. He was, he was the guy that used to like, it's the worst. I, I feel bad even describing what it is. Even as the messenger, I feel shitty talking about this. But he's this guy that used to like put a glove on his head and blow it up with his nose and then it would like explode on his head. It's like somewhere between a worse carrot top, if that's possible, and some terrible sort of, you know, Seinfeld offshoot. Anyway, this guy, he hosted a bunch of game shows later on here in the States. And, uh, and he was on the program, right? And it's these other two ladies, like Hoda and Kathy Lee or whatever, are these other sort of morning celebrity people. They were the hostesses. And what they do, it's live. So they have kind of like a, a triangle set up with all the cameras in the center. I love that this is how we're kicking this yeah, off, by the way. Yeah, man, this is perfect. Uh, basically, basically, so the band's already set up on one side of the triangle. There's another guest over here, presumably some 
you know, chef we don't know the name of that's going to show us how to make a tart or some shit. And then on the other side was this Howie Mandel character on the couch, the sort of more standard talk show couch thing, right? So we could see in the monitors of the cameras when they were aimed at Howie Mandel and these other two women that were the hostesses, okay? This part's important. So they And they just swing it around during the commercial break because it actually, the runtime actually is live. So that's why it's set up like this. They just sort of do all the blocking at first and then they go, you know? So while it's happening, though, we didn't see this during the blocking, but while it's happening, this famous actor guy that we're backing up turns around to me and goes, are you fucking seeing this? You know? And, and I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> only when the camera, when the camera is on Howie Mandel, only... His eyes are fucking glowing like the Antichrist, <laughs> but not on the two women. The same camera aimed at a different person and nothing <laughs> happens. And then they'd cut back to Howie Mandel and only on the like somehow not on the TV monitor, but on the on the monitor that's just on the back of the camera. No joke, he looked like the devil, absolutely the devil. And we just were cracking up. And so then when I go back and watch this particular today show appearance and i can see this sort of pressure in all of our eyes because we had been laughing like insanely at seeing this comedian look like the devil in the tv monitor for like you know the 10 minutes or it feels like an eternity it was probably four minutes that they were talking to him anyway so so there you go that's my story thanks for having me <laughs> I'm signing off nothing to do with audio whatsoever so yes howie mandel is the devil Thanks for thanks for letting me. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. Oh. So one of the main reasons we've um, got this ridiculous podcast thing is because we like uh, the idea of talking to people who, I mean, your enthusiasm, as you as you suggested, is is it's it's basically everyone we've spoke to. It's people who are generally come through from musicians into engineering and even still, or as I mean, you said you know you're endlessly fascinated, or there's always something new to. Um, attach yourself to whether whether it be you know like from a technical point of view or a performance point of view so you you seem like one of these people who've just got a a cv which reads that way because it's it's spattered with production writing sound design and i wonder if you'd like to talk about some of that stuff yeah i mean it's growing up i didn't see the sort of genre constraints that ultimately i learned were there Meaning they, they, they existed, of course, when I was a kid, but I didn't know they were there because my dad would have a, you know, he was fascinated with uh, New Orleans music quite a bit. So there would be a Meters record right next to my Led Zeppelin record, and they were the same thing to me. They played heavy riffs, and it was grooving and all of this, and I had no idea not just in a sort of pseudo woke way that like I didn't see color in my record collection or anything like this. It was more about the idea that genre specific it it really was it felt as though everybody that i liked in music everybody i chose to listen to i had some sort of fantasy maybe not in literal terms but maybe now looking back it was this that i had some sort of fantasy that they would all get along really well like sort of i was the common denominator in choosing all of these things and i didn't even know that they were so different and, and so they must all just hang out in some magical place that I'm not invited to because it's sort of presented that way, right? In sort of the entertainment business, if you ever watch, a, as a kid, especially if you watch the Grammys or you watch a, an, any award show or any 
documentary or anything. There's always like Janis Joplin barfing on Jimi Hendrix or something, you know, and you're like, wow, I want to get barfed on, you know, or whatever is supposed to be attractive about the entertainment business. And it's basically people throwing up. That's that's the entertainment business at large or the music business. And either avoiding it or getting like right under the stream, you know. <laughs> or choking and on so, it. Yeah, of course. Oh yeah, or choking on it. Thanks for making it dark. And so the the thing is is I I felt like my my dad was a writer, is a writer. And he became more of a journalist and then kind of semi-retired to writing uh, non-fiction but books and the point is is that there was always cool writers hanging around with him and my favorite people were the most well-read so meaning it wasn't like somebody that was a poet only read poetry or somebody that was writing a novel only read other novels like within their chosen you know genre if you will so I loved the people that in a, in a particular era, it was like Zeppelin trying to be the blues guys or the funk guys and the funk guys trying to be the rock guys or all of this. There was always sort of this cross-pollination occurring rather than all these splintered genres. And, and that led me to be able to do a hardcore band. And I'm referencing like a Joni Mitchell record like Court and Spark or the, or the, the sense of heavy that came from you know, look a pie pie by, by the meters, you know, it, uh, being applied to something that sounds like neurosis or sick of it all. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like the, the genres for me were kind of like colors on a palette. I mean, to, to use an obvious cliche, right? The same way that microphones are that or whatever, we have choices to make here. So all of a sudden when you hear something like a wildflowers record, you know, the Tom Petty thing, and you hear drums that sound, quote, like Bonham. There's a bunch of, like, room mic in it. But in a Tom Petty record, it's not heavy. You know, it's like a pop record. And, and the way it moves in certain songs, you're like, wow, this is this lumbering, like, oafish beat in a beautiful way with a bunch of room mic. And that's Jim Scott, you know, battling with Rick Rubin to turn up the room mics, probably, you know. And, and, and it has a particular feel, but it's not just diving directly at the the same old genre based cliches or they, they become tropes, you know? Yeah. So anyway, it allowed me to, or not allowed, it inspired me to move around and say, I want to mix a movie. I want to write with the heavy guy. I want to like do a record that's super brutally loud. And then the next day do something really beautiful. It's, it's why I wound up in the room on records like the sparkle horse stuff, because there was what genre is that? What genre is, is Tom Waits or, you know what I mean? They sort of exist outside of these, these walls that are put up around, you know, alternative rock or this rock or that rock. And obviously we need to be able to target it. If you're working for a label, and they're like, this is going to chart at active, but we're hoping to cross over to alternative charts. You know, if it's like a marketing decision, then of course it's like a, a, a 13 minute guitar solo is not going to be appropriate on a song that's meant to go to alternative radio. It's supposed to play right after Foo Fighters and right before Green Day or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever alternative is right now. TV on the radio. And then, you know, St. Vincent, and then, uh, I don't know, what happened next. Yeah, so, you've kind of I mean, I it. think moving around, being more like a method actor, sorry, being more like a method actor and 
getting inside the role that's required of you as a producer and sort of making decisions from within that role. Like on a Joni Mitchell record, a flute might be appropriate. On a Neurosis record, a flute may not be appropriate. Who knows? Or it becomes sort of black metal because you chose flutes and instrumentation like this in the intro, and, and there you have an entirely new thing occurring in the studio, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's bagpipes on Neurosis records, aren't there? Sure. I mean, they get all Celtic-y about things, for sure. I mean, there's those tribes of Neurot records that are basically just like hitting barrels near Stonehenge or some shit, or at least near a henge. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, um, I mean, I, I was going to ask you, I, I, mean, I was basically going to ask you a question that you've essentially just answered. And that was kind of when you talk about people like, you know, like Tom Waits and, uh, you know, Sparkle House or, or whoever, people who um, you kind of would expect them to be recording in, unconventional ways and experimenting in the studio and things like that but do you find that you take your kind of love of experimental techniques and things like that when you're recording more conventional sounding records and kind of of course yeah of course i mean i mean that's the thing it's it's a spectrum right so if you can make something that's just left of center on the radio and it stands out it's a gamble and yet it stands out i mean we had tons of success with the highly suspect records which are like, you know, they they came to record with me because they had seen the stuff I did with the Black Keys because it was released as weekly webisodes um, with this project called Black Rock that I did with them where it was Dan and Pat, the two Black Keys guys, uh, making beats basically, in quotes, for, for hip-hop guys. And so it would be like somebody was going to come in and rap over something that we had created and Dan would sing the hook, let's say. It was the whole formula was kind of we were acutely aware of other kind of rap rock projects. And so again, it was like, sorry, you would have to be able to talk to someone who is, who understands what music was before there was this kind of divorce imposed on R&B where rap went one way and rock went the other, as opposed to just knowing that Funkadelic has some of the heaviest records in history and they sound either like, Hendrix or you know stoner rock depending on your age and paradigm like whatever you wherever you're coming from if you hear a, an old funkadelic record you're like wow this is you know like Caius or this is like you know something spacey or, or you hear can like what is can in the in the grand scheme of things are they were they a funk band were they psych rock you know again I I think that one thing that that happens is being able to then put up a microphone that's quote unexpected when doing a, a record for the radio it's either an asset or a liability right like otherwise we would just all go right up the middle so my willingness to gamble with other people's <laughs> livelihoods i guess is what came out of all of this you know the idea that it's like let's let's see what we get from this and and it but it's it's never something that could be, I don't know. It's an informed decision, man. You know, like when you make, when you make a guess about what somebody wants or needs, it's like, you'll never really know. I can't guess what's in your brain really, whether it's my kid or my friend or a band or you, or, you know, like somebody on the 
plane, you know, that you just met or whatever. But we, we can read each other. I mean, humans read each other pretty well. And, and I think a lot of production is understanding the paradigm that a particular piece of music will enter into. Rather than just looking at the nuts and bolts of the song itself, it's, it's almost the Duchampian rendezvous in the sense that you're taking the urinal and putting it in the Louvre. You know, you're changing the context in which it's going to be viewed rather than reinventing guitar for the millionth time. It's like, so, so framing those gestures with a couple unexpected moves for me, that's how we manipulate context. And, and it's people were like, wow, it's rock, but it feels fresh. It feels new somehow when that highly suspect stuff came out. And I'm like, that's because I didn't jump right at the same old frickin' stereotypes and tropes. And nor did the primary songwriter. I mean, the, the, the primary writer in that band is brilliant. And he's sort of reinventing things again by, by listening to everything and, and loving, loving music that isn't just Zeppelin and, you know, all kinds of things. You, you wind up with this reframing of the same old gestures because ultimately it's an amp cranked way up and a, and a Les Paul, you know, or whatever, or, or a telly, whatever it is. You know, it's, a, it's an electric guitar through a, a guitar amp. And yet we've, we've given it a new framework around it. So rock is the same old urinal to me and we're just putting it in the Louvre, you know? I think there's a lot to do with manipulating context when you're a producer and that's, that's kind of a higher level concept than just looking at whether the bridge goes on too many times or, you know what I mean? The, the form-based <coughs> production for me is kind of like that's when you're a sophomore, in the sophomore years of looking at music, you know. Did you always include this as part of your practice or is this something you developed? And can you pinpoint when you did involve it more? So, yeah. I've always included it. I was never able to articulate it as I just did. As far as the manipulation of context, that's like a... a that's a concept that's been rendered down through a hundred million caffeinated rants about what I'm trying to do with my life in music. <laughs> um, but then I finally was able to freaking get to the point in my late forties. <laughs> you know, it took me a minute. Um, I've always incorporated things like calibration of my aesthetic compass. And that was a way, again, yet another way of, of figuring out how to articulate our meaning all of us that do anything in aesthetics our search for quote better because i started to think about how would i teach this how would i teach why is it that i can turn a knob like a 12k shelving eq on a vocal let's say i can turn that up and i i approach better and then i fly right past it and i start heading back towards worse so we wind up on this sort of tiny speck of an island called better in a sea of worse that extends to infinity all around us it's sort of so how do we know where to land i mean what the fuck that's such an arbitrary and weird thing that we all do and then some people just say well i do it you know i use my gut i use my ear i use my whatever that you describe it as instinct but what is it really and for me it's the same kind of as a you know, a moral compass is what I was looking at when I started to see that there's all these kind of subtle things. Maybe a music teacher said something 
snide to you when you were nine or you know a teacher said something supportive or you know all all sort of all manner of tiny little personalized experiences that that define each of our trajectories through not just this business but through life so you know that's how when you're presented with a choice of three sandwiches for relatively the same price at the deli one is better to you there's always a better and worse so it's not just this like bro it's art you can do anything like no you can't there is a better and there's a better based on the context that you've defined through your songwriting the chord choices the way you sound if you have an inherent melancholy in your voice and yet you keep trying to sing happy songs maybe if we frame it as a nick drakey thing it'll be huge but maybe if we frame it as something like a Britney Spears thing, you just kind of sound sad and not poppy or shiny, you know? And so meaning, you know, my ability to find better requires constant calibration and sort of personal course correction. And I find that most of the people that I work with that, that have done anything of note, that's the common denominator, you know, meaning that their sense of better even in, you know, people will see it as better in spite of what they're capable of doing. Like Tom Waits being able to see better for him is different than... Uh, I just did a thing which is crazy. I can't even believe I can say this. I just did a thing that was... I had all the Beatles multi-tracks released to us from Abbey Road. And it was... Rick Rubin had me come in and, and engineer this thing with he and Paul McCartney. It's going to be a documentary ultimately but it's conversation so it's me paul mccartney rick rubin i mean and then a team of eight million people filming it and you know a lot of staff but but so bringing up those tracks individual tracks for everything up through wings i mean we listen to like live and let die you know what i mean on on the multi-tracks and and the thing was is is hearing paul describe it in his terms and not in the same old cheeky fucking beatlesy answer because he's dealt with that for 800 years now where some host of a show that's corny like on a morning show is like so were you sad when you wrote dear prudence you know or whatever and, and he has to give them some bullshit answer that just works for the like morning you know coffee but so hearing he and rick rubin actually discuss it it really cemented for me that the concept of finding better is truly what any of the greats have in common because it didn't matter what organ was in the hallway when they were doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It, it just meant that Paul heard it as giving it this sort of psychedelic thing because he's using this weird organ and found a little line on it that sounded weirdly vintage and yet space age at the same time you know like the futurist movement you know it felt like a vision of the future but from a long time ago for me that's because his aesthetic compass is so acutely you know so accurately tuned to what was going on in the the paradigm around him like the late 60s or the early 70s time and place and all of these things in that context that song was perfection mm. in that context. It doesn't just mean it's perfection forever. It lives on as a testament or a monument to what people were thinking in those times, what people were experimenting with in those times, you know. But, but that has interested me all along. And the more I get to spend time in a room with people that I look up to that are, have been responsible for 
either a billion records, sometimes obscure, sometimes giant hits, like a Rick Rubin, like a Paul McCartney, like a Tom Waits, like a Spocker Horse, even, you know, Mark's not around, not with us anymore, but mm. to have spent time in, in the room with people like that, that's sort of the common denominator. It's not whether we used a fucking FET 47 on the outside of the kick drum. It's really interesting hearing you mention Rick Rubin, actually, because obviously you're both, um, you know, you, you would both call yourselves producers, right? Mm -hmm. Would you consider your approaches to be quite different? You know... I don't know. It's it's hard for me to even cop to it based on Rick's successes and his history. I mean, I'm the thing that I'm 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 only being feeling self conscious because of Rick's uh, uh, successes. You know, I, sure. I, so to even to even have you place us in the same sentence makes me feel awkward to even cop to that. You know, <laughs> to sort of accept that. Yeah. I think I think what's different in anyone's approach is a personalized idea of better. And I'm not just being evasive. I, I just think that's true. So if, so if Rick, if Rick, I don't know this, I can't speak for him, but if Rick feels that better is creating the environment that he creates for artists to do their best, I mean, I've worked at Shangri-La. I've worked at Rick's studio. Yeah. And so it, it, the environment that, that he creates there so that people feel like they can do their best, it includes a sense of purity and perfection in the surroundings meaning you know using using a term that that a lot of his assistants and engineers use is for things to be rick ready right and and rick ready means that you know you can tell that the over the cables that are coming down from the overhead mics are just like straight down the the stand and like coiled at the bottom and it just is clean and it shows it's the mint on the pillow you know does that mint actually help you sleep better of course not but it shows that somebody gave a crap when they when they set up your room and and so there's a lot of mints on the pillow you can leave in a session that don't take much time and yet the person feels as though it's important like that you care that they're there yeah and that that absolutely affects the way somebody's going to perform whether it's a vocal the most intimate of moments you know or a drummer that you set up a little stand next to the drums with a little decanter and a glass already there because they're probably going to want water if it's a long day you know things like this become quote the mint on the pillow and i think that I'm concentrating on what we would share in common is an understanding of that rather than the differences in working method. The differences are so personal that I have no idea. I've never had Rick produce a thing for me or been in the room while he's just strictly producing, you mm. know? And, and so at the same time, I understand that exuding influence or exerting influence on something by exuding a sense that everything's going to be okay I understand that. I understand how that would work because if I got on a plane and the pilot was like rocking back and forth and I see him reading the manual for how to fly, you know, or whatever, I would think twice about being on that plane. And my, even if the flight went off without a hitch, I would be, yeah, I would be, I would be biting my nails the entire time thinking that at any moment I'm going to die and that would affect the experience. Absolutely. Same exact flight, same flight time, no turbulence, nothing but I just happened to see the pilot sweating and freaking out. Of course, it's going to be a completely different experience. So 
I definitely understand that aspect of it. And I think, again, all the producers or, or people of note, meaning people who have made a difference in the industry that I've had access to, whether they are producers, artists, whatever they are, engineers, they always exude something like that. And it's not just as simple as confidence. You know, I mean, I'm sure it's rooted in this. It's rooted in experience. It's rooted in confidence. But I think methods are something that that go in textbooks and methods are just sort of a means to bring the confidence to the room. Mm. You know, it's not actually a method like the, the same way that if there was a method to a conversation and you just had sort of predetermined questions, it's always very canned and corny as opposed to a free form kind of, you know, ad lib or whatever you want to call it. We're, we're, we're freestyling here. And, and, and there's a sense of that. Say that again, I'm sorry. We've learned that the hard way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I mean, but we all do. And, and the same way in production, though, if you have a, a prescription for a great record and because it worked on record one and you try to apply that same prescription to record two, you're then giving penicillin to somebody with a headache. You know what I mean? It's like you, you wind up with your diagnostics are your most valuable asset when you're producing your ability to sort of figure out what the right medicine is for any given moment. Because otherwise, again, I mean, it would be like having some sort of, you know, autistic knowledge, thoroughly autistic knowledge of all medical procedures ever performed by humans on the face of the earth in history and zero awareness in the room of what which one is needed you'd wind up amputating an arm for a sneeze you know or you'd wind up like and and it sounds ridiculous to put it in these terms but it's absolutely what people do when they're producing a record they're misdiagnosing what the record needs what the people need to achieve what they should be able to achieve in the room with you and so therefore they feel very uh sort of justified in offering up a bowl of penicillin pills to the person with the headache, you know, it's like the, the gesture is there and yet it's absolutely wrong, you know, and, and it's not going to lead somewhere. So, so seeing Rick able to take care of everything down to the most minute detail of like the gaff tape looking nice on the floor that's holding down the cable, like if there's a record where someone didn't do that, and a record where someone does, I would have to say that there's more chance that something better comes from the one where people cared just a little bit more about the process. And we and we get into diminishing returns here, of course. But if you that we can assume that those perfectly coiled cables don't come at the sake of using a good mic or having the right drums or the right drummer. We can make that assumption that just coiling the cables with a crap band and a crap song and all of that clearly doesn't make a hit. Just like penicillin doesn't just make you healthier if you take it every day. You know, there's a place and a time and all of this, and then there's more invasive surgeries rather than just something like penicillin where, again, there's a time for that. We can assume that the doctor understands all of that when they suggest a course towards better. And for me, that's absolutely what a producer's job is, without a doubt. And, they, and it manifests in different ways. So, yes, everybody has their method, their, their way of getting there. 
but at the core it's it's finding better or a path to better i should mm -hmm. say Qu quincy jones said um, when asked the question it was something along the lines of making sure you hang your trousers up correctly over the baths to get the, the creases out each night yeah that, that was his number one production tip oh, i love that i love that Draw a real hot bath, hang your trousers over that each night, and your shirt, and all the creases out. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but see, that's, that's so good, and that's so well rendered. I mean, that, of course, it gets farther into Yoda territory the more we head towards the Quincy Joneses <laughs> and the Brian Enos. It's funny, when I started to teach this class, somebody finally said to me, you must have read about cybernetics. And I was like, as a matter of fact, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. And and basically, it's something you both should check out and anybody listening to this should check out because they said you're treading on ground where, you know, Eno kind of grabbed this this cybernetics thing. And it sounds like an 80s thing. And when they told me it was Eno, I was like, I don't give a fuck about cybernetics already based on the name and the era that you're referencing. And then I found out it was actually from the Industrial Revolution. And it just has a name that sounds very 80s because it has cyber and edics in it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and basically, though, there's a symbol for it, which is a circle. But it has a little hooked arrow pointing back at itself, sort of like the male and female universal symbols. But the arrow sort of aims back on the circle. And what it means is the number of times that I've done this, you go around and then you see where there's room for improvement with that perspective by pulling outside the, the process. And each time you come around and you see room to improve your next trip around the circle, that was the whole idea, was the ability for tradesmen to give automated processes a shot at being as efficient as the carpenters of the day. What do we, how do we make a machine that could be a cyclical motion not that it's predicated on cyclical motion, but that is a cyclical motion in a machine to make barrels or whatever the fuck, you know, in that era. It was always barrels for some reason. <laughs> it's all they ever made in like 1850, you know. <laughs> barrels are pipes or something, you know. And so making round shit was hard, <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but so it... it have you ever seen the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Yeah, I have. So that's an example of a lifetime, basically, of cybernetics, which is, makes me puke to say that word every yeah, time. But that's an example of it because of the fact that it's an incredibly simple thing. It's fish and rice, basically, you know? Mm -hmm. So, But the fact that he had done this every single day of his life, he looked at a little, a place where something could be a little bit, quote, better. And the recognition of better only came from doing it a hundred times and then seeing, ah, I can cook the rice a little longer, or a little shorter or at a higher pressure or, you know, any of the variables that are available to you within this very finite system. Right. You know, I mean, hence the circle as well. And I've since not really read a lot about cybernetics. I mean, I read the like Wikipedia page, but I understood it immediately when why somebody told me. This is this is a system somebody kind of came up with to describe what you're trying to describe of where recognizes the place, recognizing the places in your process where there's room for improvement. Yeah. And the recognition of that taking you somewhere farther than someone else who can't see it. I think that um, the 
the sort of comparison between you know his gyro dreams of sushi and being a successful sort of anything but i mean in particular talking about production i mean there's the whole thing about the is it his son who he who's teaching how to do it and uh and, yes, and these two sons, and the, but the one, only one of them is actually the sort of heir to it. Oh, the yeah. other one took off. The and, other one left and started his own company. Oh, that's right, yeah. But he had saying, to like, break out of the circle there, you know? But when they start when they start making the rice, isn't there some sort of like, you, yeah. you only make rice for like 10 years? Yeah, it's disgustingly long. It's ridiculous. Yeah, the apprentices there, it's like in measured in decades, basically, yeah. rather than in, you know, months or years. It's ridiculous. But I kind of feel but that's why it's such a beautiful example of it, though. That refinement, it takes that long because they're making such small moves. You wouldn't even recognize it. You'd be like, bro, it's rice. Mm -hmm. Relax, you know, like whatever. And And it's funny that it's where we get into this sort of fine line between is it is the recognition of tiny variables within a finite process, does that require OCD? I don't think it does because you can't, OCD doesn't allow you to ever break out of the patterning that it sort of locks you in place, right? So it's this sort of, it's this deliberate evolution rather than, or it's like inorganic evolution. We're forcing it. I mean, have we learned nothing from Pokemon? You know, it's like you we like fo forcing the move, meaning poking at the 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 process, putting up a microphone that's unexpected required me to then react that BlackRock record. I used a beta 52 as an overhead mono overhead, a microphone that people would think of as a kick drum microphone. You know, there was like a 57 in the kick. There was a copper phone on the hat. There was an M88, you know, just kind of like randomly aimed. It looked like it would have been a talk back that somebody left kind of near the rack tom. And then one deep room mic that was like an 87 or something norm, more normal in quotes. And, and then Chad Blake and I both mixed that record sort of half and half, right? And so it was so interesting to then hear you know, the mix with the masters thing on the, on YouTube that's with Chad Blake that says tracking drums with Chad Blake. And it's the drums I tracked <laughs> that play <laughs> the soundtrack for tracking drums with Chad Blake are drums that I tracked. And it's so funny that the, the, the point of that more than my resentment <laughs> is, <laughs> is actually, is actually the fact that they chose that. Mix with the frickin' masters chose that to be the thing. And, and I don't mean it again because they're drums I tracked. I mean it because of the fact that it's everything is wrong, in mm. quotes, when, when measured against sort of traditional or expected roles for microphones. You know? Yeah. Again, this is that finding better concept. Like, is better sticking out from the pack sometimes? is better using a microphone that quote is called a kick drum microphone as an overhead it is if you're trying to make it sound like an old breakbeat that rolls off at 5k but they got a ton of presence at like 4.8 or something that kind of hurts in the cymbals like on a funkadelic record like just that that immediately that texture being woven into the the fabric of those drum captures for me 
you can't do anything about it. So no matter what the mix engineer was doing, whether it was me or Chad, you wind up with something that carries the DNA of that that decision. You know, it carries the spirit of what we were trying to do. And in that sense, it's better. It carries the narrative. Yeah. Can I blab for a second about this sort of hierarchical way of thinking that came from this uh, this whole line of what we're talking about Absolutely. here? <laughs> Basically, it's sort of this notion that it's a, I'm a bit full of shit on this. So but take it with a grain of salt, knowing that this was a, a, my motive for any of this was a way to teach it to somebody who has never done this before. Clearly, you both will understand that we break these rules all the time. But the but when I when I looked at the idea that they would be, quote, rules and how much I just said, like having a method isn't actually something that leads to good results in aesthetics, you know, it's it's like. I started to see a hierarchical approach, kind of like the Turing test or the sieve of Eratosthenes, meaning that like that's that's a way to find prime numbers, right? It's not a way to get an outcome, like a mathematical outcome. It's a mathematical function that allows you to find primes within a given range. Like you could say between 180 and 6,000, I want to know all the primes. The sieve of Eratosthenes will give you that rather than giving you, quote, an answer. It just helps you find, you know, what the information you're looking for. The Turing test it helps you figure out if you're communicating with artificial intelligence or a human based on the, the way the logic is laid out in what you ask of it, right? So based on things like this, I started to recognize that there is actually a hierarchy here that if we start with, at the top of the ladder, compositional intention... It's the whole reason that the freaking thing exists at all. Mm. Why did you write it? You know, why, why does this even, why is this a song? Why art? Why sculpture? Why anything? And then we look at right below that is production vision, meaning how are we going to make this transition from an idea to something that can be shared with the world? How do we actually get this compassionate feeling of wanting to share something out into the world? And then engineering follows that. And that's it. That's the whole ladder here. Mm. And we can test this again and again and again that when we look at the, the narrative, right, the compositional intention, the story it's trying to tell or the gesture it's trying to get across to people, when we look at the land speeder in Star Wars, when we're first seeing Star Wars for the first time and we're confronted by something called a land speeder, the narrative, right, when we then look at the production vision here, we're looking at the director saying, I need something with dents in it. You know, like, why, why are we designing this to have dents in it? It's just as easy to make it look like perfectly red or perfectly blue or whatever. It's probably easier rather than kind of relicking this thing. I need, I need a way that shows that this guy is, you know, has cultural touch points in it that I go, okay, that's how he's going to get to the store. And some of my friends have a shinier way. My, my friend's parents, when I saw that, had a shinier way to get to the store than my parents. So all of a sudden I was like immediately relating to this guy, right? So again, when we're determining better and worse, we have to look at that hierarchy. When creating the land speeder, putting dents in it, making it look a little bit beat up, is that the story of Star Wars? No. But does it support the narrative that there's a hero 
that comes from humble beginnings and ultimately grows to change the entire destiny of the universe or of the galaxy? The answer is yes. So we get a better, worse response from our, our compass. You know, it sort of puts it on a finer scale of a couple dents shows that this thing is like this guy has no idea his importance in the universe yet. And that to me holds up when we look at scale and scope of a project, right? As a mix engineer, because if we're dealing with a finite amount of anything like headroom, then what are we left with here? We're left with budgeting. That's it. So when we listen to any any song in history, people were dealing with the same constraints we were. Headroom, you know, physics, regardless of whether it was tape or whatever, they were dealing with headroom in the end. And so what are we hearing when we hear any recording in history? We're hearing priorities and how they budgeted as to what's out front, what's the background, what's the foreground, because it can't all be in focus at once, even with the best lens, you know, even with the best microphone. So we're hearing priorities. Now, again, that comes in in the production phase. So there's compositional intention and then the producer saying, I understand what's important about this and how we're going to frame it. You see what I mean? And yeah. therefore, a lens, the engineering side of it, it's just easier with the visual analogy for people usually. A lens with like massive depth of field means that even though in the book it says that Chewbacca runs a mile away, the director is not like, okay, run a mile <laughs> and we'll film it. You know, it's not that literal. It's like they, with, with very shallow depth of field, you can focus on the thing in the front and then Chewbacca goes out of focus 20 feet back. And that's the mile away that we need because when we capture things, when we're recording, they transition in that production phase from actual to metaphor. All recording is metaphor. When I say snare drum, I'm making a noise with my mouth that elicits a response in you that you understand what the fuck I'm talking about. Snare drum doesn't fall out of my mouth. It doesn't land in your lap. The actual thing does not happen when I make that noise, right? Even this, when I go like this, my hand just got zero inches closer to you. So it's representational. The world that we're dealing with is representational. And so when people look at some setups that I've used, it's using this hierarchical thinking. And again, I don't sit there and go, okay, now I have to think of this hierarchical stage. You know, we do do this based on instinct, but this is a way to describe what instinct looks like in audio for me or in aesthetics. If I was a sculptor, and I love this because it becomes so literal just for a moment here. If I was a sculptor, the moment that I started reading about people who do sculpture and they said that they could see the form within the piece of marble, right? We'll call it a mar little marble sculpture. They could see it and then they remove everything that's not necessary. They sort of, you know, release the form that they could see in it. And I started to understand why that's important, because if I started off and I made a toe and it was like this big, then I've with just that one decision, I've defined the scale of the rest of the thing or. I've made something that has a big giant toe and a tiny little body. You know what I mean? Because I then have to crush everything else in there. So I've prioritized wrong. If the goal, if the narrative or the gesture at the top of that hierarchy is to make something that just looks like a solid human form, an attractive male or female form in marble, then I need to get the scale right. 
and that requires prioritizing when you change from the size of a human down. We're literally scaling it down. Do you find that that's um, often your role as a producer then to kind of so someone comes to you with the piece of marble and says, I, I kind of I've got this idea for this, but I'm not but I'm not entirely sure how to do it. And you can go, well, you can help them facilitate seeing the piece absolutely how to place it in that finite space to where we're not going to run out when it comes time to get to the eyes and it just sort of ends here mm. and it's why we hear productions that just miss by an inch or two but it's wrong like if the shot is this it's like you can still see me you get where i am there's all most of the information is there but it's your head's chopped off you know your head's cut off three inches of your head is cut off and that's just quote again not right Unless, of course, it's for comedic effect, like where I just moved in our Zoom meeting here. You know what I mean? It's like that type of thing. It's it's like the reason it's comedy is the same reason it's, quote, wrong. I went outside expected parameters, and that's what makes a joke. The unexpected aspect of that, you know? And, I mean, that interests me so much. The The fact that we've defined this shot, and so this is wrong, and this is right. But it's only because of the shot. If I move it up here, then me standing up on my chair a little bit becomes right again. So again, it's a little bit Yoda, but it's like we do have these finite parameters that we work within. And so when helping someone, again, it's a compassionate act. I mean, let's put it this way. After all that ranting, I feel that great art, music in particular to stay on topic, but music is life's experiences filtered through the lens of people's talents. So if I'm there to help sort of clarify that, I can bring it into focus or make it project it bigger on the wall type of thing. You know, if you make the sounds larger than life, that timbre even carries something with it. It carries information. And so as a producer, for me, it's separating the metadata from the data. What what does this timbre carry? Because I don't speak Turkish, right? I'm assuming neither of you speak Turkish, but I've worked a bunch in Istanbul, right? And so if you if the three of us were walking down the street today, we just met this morning. If we were walking down the street today in Istanbul, just from the sound of people's voices, we would make a life or death decision like, is that a riot or is it a wedding getting out or is it a party? You know, there's a there's a there's a message carried just by timbre that humans respond to. And so without a doubt, keeping an eye on that sort of metadata, I keep using that because it's, it's the subtext, it's what's inferred rather than what's just said out in the clear. You know, so a, a guitar says something other than the chords, just the tone itself, a piano. And then we get even farther with refining that just like language does as a metaphor where the more descriptive we are with a chord and a timbre and then a chord in context along with its timbre, all of a sudden that becomes a very compelling story. Just like it's not a jumble, well, I'm close, but it's usually not a jumble of words coming at random out of somebody's mouth that you're left to interpret. Unless, again, it's meant to be deliberately confusing. You know, a sort of washy moment in a bridge that then comes back into clear focus for the last chorus. That can be a great device 
when you don't want the bridge to be quieter, but you want the chorus to still stick out again when we return to it for that big last time around the hook. It's like stay loud, but get blurry and then get very sharp again. And it's sort of weirdly the, the lack of definition infers something it says something to people it's the same instrumentation it might even just be the blurry version of the verse or the chorus meaning the less tight kind of delayed out reverby moment that gets very dry again right when we hit the last chorus again that's just a timbre shift i've said it a million times in songs when we're writing we can force a bridge by changing timbres i've said that so many times where it's like not worrying about writing a whole new part we'll just make it a bridge by sort of feeling like this is it's become the intimate version of the same person speaking just for a moment is a complete shift in energy it's a complete shift in energy and in this case it reads as comedy yet again because i broke outside the expectation and delivered something contrary to the point <laughs> oh, man. man you uh, so like how much emphasis how much emphasis do you put on pre-production pre-production yes but it takes many forms so meaning sometimes it's actually being in the live room with a younger band and figuring out what bad habits we might need to iron out or what good habits we'd like to shine a light on you know like to see what we're working with sometimes is pre-production rather than just really getting down to the nuts and bolts it's not boot camp you know we don't like break you down to build you back up it's it's much more about i i suppose as an umbrella concept pre-production is taking the time to figure out what our approach will be when we when we actually start setting up microphones it's more about that like a sort of fact finding mission or recon mm. to make it annoyingly tactical it's like recon, bro. <laughs> and how, how do you deal with it with certain artists who don't know how to um, verbalize these things? Well, that's sort of our job, isn't it? A lot of times people have a sense of what better is and they just simply don't have the vocabulary to describe what would make it better for them. Kind of the same as like a little kid that's crying when they're hungry and they don't know how to say food yet. <laughs> it's absolutely the same thing. I mean, it's 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 figuring out how to read the cues and looking at the the surrounding information, meaning, again, like if I look around and it's about the time that I know my kid wants to eat and they're getting grouchy, I can sort of figure it out. You don't have to be fucking Sherlock Holmes to figure that one out. <laughs> and, you know, and so basically it's the it's the same thing, but on a much more subtle level that just made for a good example, but on a much more subtle level where seeing what makes someone feel good about their take and you didn't do it on purpose but you just sort of weren't looking at them while they did it and you happen to be looking at my tape machines this way but so if i'm like looking at the meters over here or whatever and then i'm like wow i'm never gonna look at this person i, I don't like get on the talk back and say cool on take two i'm also going to not look at you because you seem to be more comfortable with that you know what i mean it's it's not that it's just you processing, again, that frickin' damn cybernetics thing. It's like you wind up with seeing that the process, there's the room for improvement, tiny little improvement, that today it's going to be one of those things where the lights are off or brighter because they can't read the sheet music or 
you know, water, again, the water next to the drummer. It's like they feel like it matters that they're there. Pre-production can be that. I'll see that they respond to direction and suggestions or I should just shut the hell up and have them sort of figure it out on their own. Um, so, so in that sense, my goal never changes. I'm steadfast in where I'm trying to get us and I'm the most malleable thing in the universe when it comes to how we're going to get there. Like you say, San Francisco, and I know that it's West and you don't from here, right? From New York. It's like, I'm going to start kind of walking in that direction and, and look over my shoulder quietly to see if you all started following me or if you're kind of like just staring at me with suspicion 15 feet back now. Because that means I got to go back and figure out how to get you to come along or wave at you or, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. it's absolutely, it can be boiled down to these basic human kind of gestures. I think that creativity can be like a dark cave. And so when, you know, meaning it's the unknown, like I'm asking you to go outside what you've been doing in your rehearsal space or your bedroom or wherever you make music for God knows it might've been your whole life up to the point where some label decides to give enough money to come work with me or however we wound up in the room together. So that's a really dark cave. Like you have no idea what happens next when you come in the room with this person that you have heard did records with these other people, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, if I get behind you and I start shoving you in, you're gonna dig in your heels like crazy. Or I can pull out the flashlight or torch, depending on what country you're in, and aim it into the damn cave and start walking. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, okay, this person knows where they're going or they know that we needed that light to then kind of navigate this dark cave of where we're going. It's the same idea as if I have a map to a minefield, it's simply a compassionate act to say, okay, move a little to the left, now step here, now step there, right? That's one way of going about it. But you might still have crazy amounts of anxiety about every footfall. Or I like stomp in the sand everywhere and you're going to put your feet right in my footsteps. You would stand there with confidence because you saw that it didn't blow my leg off. So I think there's a lot to do with sort of leading by example, and that takes many forms. It's, not, it's easy to say that, but you have to figure out what the example is because it's not going in and playing the drums better than the young drummer to say, now this is how it's done, son. You know, it's not, it's so not that. It's absolutely about saying this result, look at this result that we got from you moving the cymbals two inches higher than they were compared to the rack tom. So we just get a little bit less bleed in that Josephson mic we're using. And no, I don't have an endorsement for them. <laughs> have you, um, <laughs> have you read Michael Beinhorn's book, uh, Unlocking Creativity? No. It's, Should I? Yeah. It's really interesting. It's like, it's, it's okay. very much like, like what you've been talking about, like how to kind of, um, it's, it's mostly about pre-production. And how to kind of, uh, and he gives like really, really specific examples, like of, of how to overcome specific um, hurdles and obstacles uh, when working with bands and musicians in the studio. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very similar to what you, the, the kind of things you've been describing. It's really interesting. See, it's so interesting it. because this shit manifests with commonality. Mm. Meaning when I hear that like 
Eno was into cybernetics and I find out what that means. And I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, that gives a name to what I was describing without knowing it. Or Michael Beinhorn is describing a lot of these things about pre-production and the path to a record or whatever we would summarize that as. And for me, it comes from reading books like uh, the... I'm trying to think of the book that I just read. Oh my God. You can edit that, right? <laughs> we could. It's called The Evolution of, or the, what the fuck? Hold on. I'm Googling this because it's important. I can't believe I'm spacing out. It's by Jay Janes, J-A-Y-N-E-S. And I'm spacing out. I'm making this happen. And I don't care. <laughs> I don't mind that you're just staring at me waiting for this. Here. We can cut it. Don't worry. But will we? Oh, yeah. It's called The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And I wanted to get that perfectly right. And what it's about is basically the, the evolution of the human brain and how we started off as acting more like animals in the sense of strictly based on stimulus and input. So there would be an output based on the input. You know, you get poked and you say, ouch. And, and then how we started to separate the two halves of our brain through evolution. And, and it's amazing. That's where the sort of language is metaphor concept came from for me. Um, it talks about how we communicate. It talks about things that are really important for me in production as far as what we're saying with the instrumental you know, what we're saying with every... There's sort of a fractal nature to it, right? What we're saying with the mid-character of the snare should be what we're saying with the entire mix's mid-character. You know, and it sort of extends out from there. Again, as far as carrying DNA, it's the same thing. Like, the mid-range of a mix carries the DNA that allows us to sort of expand to the edges, you know? Because from there, it's kind of a tilt. It's like the mid-range is a circle, and then the, the low and high frequencies extend from there. So it can be way too bright or way too bassy. And if the mids are right, we can mess with it with the bass and treble controls. Like if you're listening to Back in Black in a rental car, you know, on the radio or whatever, and you can crank whatever you want, and the mix never changes. It just gets, it just does that tilt, you know, and how, bu how brilliant that is based on where all the fundamentals cross in the mid-range and, and how you've sort of chosen instrumentation and a way to present all of those elements that they all kind of have. It's like a fulcrum, right? That the, the, your mid-character becomes the fulcrum that you base your entire balance on for your mix. That, to me, extends all the way down to choosing a snare that has the right character in relation to the vocal or in relation to some other element that we think is going to be sort of the the flagpole, you know, where we plant our, our, our flag in the sand as to what the overall texture of the production will be. It's why I'll overprint sometimes in the beginning of, of a session. Overprint meaning not, not ridiculous, like 12 to 14 drum mics total. 14 would be extravagant for me. It's usually about 12. And that's overprinting to me, meaning that my intention is to use five in the mix. But I'll take 12 because let's say we have a limited budget. <laughs> and let's say, just for instance, we have a limited amount of time. <laughs> you know, stuff imagine. like that. <laughs> yeah, just imagine those type of constraints placed on us, right? 
and we're making a movie, the three of us, and we're, there's the crux of the whole thing is that a school bus is going to jump the river, right? And so we're going to shoot that with like 25 cameras. And then after the fact, in the editing room, we're going to say, wow, this one caught the sort of thing coming up the dusty road. It gives us a sense of speed. This one shows right where the wheels hit the bottom of the ramp, like, oh, shit, this was really happening. It shows the sort of commitment, you know, that the driver is getting into here. Like, we're going for this. And then maybe we pull to the wide shot as it arcs up over to give a sense of the scope. It's like there's reasons that each of these shots are used at certain times. Sometimes that's within an arrangement. Sometimes that's within the scope of the whole record, meaning there's a drier drums moment or a roomier drums moment. But I don't then go in and move the drum mics between every take if we're doing five basics. But it sounds like I did when I do the record because one will sound like I had put up room mics and the next one sounds like I didn't have them in the room at all. Because again, it's representational. What's on the record is the reality I've created. It doesn't matter. None of the other ones sitting in the room. I could set up 500 mics and only take your vocal with one. Does that have any bearing on the outcome other than psychologically for the singer? They're standing in a forest of mic stands at that point. And again, maybe that helped. But other than that, the listener just hears the capture on the one mic we chose as, quote, best. And from a, from a technical point of view, I mean, that's a really economic way of, of creating dynamic in an album. Like both in well, time I find that and we have else. to. We need to maximize. I mean, for me, the people that get called to do a record again are the ones that maximize whatever resources are given, whether it's the energy of the band, like whether they just get sick of hitting the snare drum for an hour. Like coming from that side of the glass, man, it's like I'm not just going to sit there and hit the damn hi-hat for you for an hour while you'd go, hmm, maybe one dB at 10K. Like, fuck you. Hit record. You know, like I'm so done. I'm so done with the day by the time somebody's beaten any of the creativity out of the room. And I had examples of that being in hardcore and punk bands when I was a kid coming up through the like CBGBs, more like loud music scene. It was like people that normally recorded, you know, Grateful Dead bootlegs or some shit trying to deal with these like four punk dudes coming in when it wasn't cool. <laughs> you know it wasn't like x games and shit existed at this point it was like we were just like the scuzzwads from down the block that saved up a couple bucks and got to go in and, and make a little you know demo tape or whatever and these guys were just hated us first of all <laughs> and, and that and that reads in the product <laughs> that comes through in the end result that we were just being hated the entire time and and i i hated that i wanted to be the engineer that said, yes, we can do that, you know, instead of always saying why it's a bad idea or whatever. And, and learning, to, learning to understand when the customer is right and when they're not. I mean, that's sort of an internet bullshit concept that gets tossed around so much. And I always use this, this metaphor that the idea that if, if I was a doctor, since we were talking about diagnostics earlier, if I was a doctor and you came in and, and I'm sitting here with like, instead of this, I have diplomas on the wall behind me that shows that I've gone to school and potentially cut apart some cadaver at some point. I know where the guts are and all of this stuff. So it shows that I know a thing or two and I have experience. And you come in and you say, I was coughing last night. I'd like you to take out my lungs. 
I would have to use all my experience to then turn and say, that will end your life. <laughs> Why don't we start with something like a cough drop or some sort of syrup before I break out a machete and just remove your lungs? So again, born of compassion, meaning if the outcome is to stop the cough, that was, that was built into that, that request. We want to stop the cough. And so many bands come in and say, we want our songs to be, quote, better. We want this to be awesome. We don't want to look like jackasses in front of our friends. Whatever their motive is for it being cool when they leave, you need to take all your experience and understand how to show that to them. You know, and it's not like, again, don't get that convoluted with the idea that taking out your lungs and killing them was like, see, I told you you'd die, <laughs> yelling at a corpse on the floor. It's like we would we would show that the positive is true, meaning I'm going to give you some cough syrup or some other thing. Go, go steam yourself, you know, whatever the idea is that we have. And then you go, wow, I didn't have to have my chest cavity cut open with a hatchet, it turns out. I just didn't know that because I don't have the experience you do. Thank you, doctor. I'm painting this really like rosy picture of what <laughs> bands say when you've actually done something great. They come back with flowers for you and they're so happy. That was brilliant. Thank you, genius human. You're amazing. <laughs> Said no band ever to any producer. I didn't get these fucking gray hairs being told that I was right all the time. Stress. It sounds to me like you've you've always been in the role of like always collaborating, whatever your position is when you're doing it. Um, is that is that? Did you start that way, or did you have to swap from being just guy who recorded punk bands to then suggesting how it could get better? Well, I think there's ultimately no other way to define it than collaborative. If there's more than one person in the room at all, it's a collaboration, in my opinion. So the answer would be yes, I've always seen it as collaboration, but because of my definition of what collaboration means. Even if it's me getting mad because I didn't have the vocabulary to express what I'm expressing to you today, nor did I have the skills that I have when it comes to choosing a microphone or any of the subtleties of the mix or basically any skills whatsoever <laughs> in recording, that can lead to a frustrating situation between you and the band you're supposedly recording. And so, you know, the number of times that I, I fucked it up let me know that within the collaborative, within the, that collaboration, within the parameters of that collaboration, meaning the recording engineer and the band, I was most certainly the weak link sometimes early on. And I, I needed to be able to deliver. So again, with compassion, I started to understand that there is sort of an educational component to producing. Engineering, I got that right years before I was ever able to communicate these ideas efficiently to the point where I sounded like a better engineer when I could convince somebody to do something that flattered the process rather than me just being able to document their bad habits like crash ride the entire time as loud as fucking possible and barely hitting the snare drum there's not a goddamn mic in the universe that's going to fix that and so and so having that conversation as an engineer that's why i think the trajectory usually is good producers came from engineering or at least analyzing what's making it good or not in the room like it like an eno 
you know, or a Rick Rubin. It doesn't mean that you had to be the one that turned the knob on the 1073, but you had to be able to recognize better. I mean, I keep going back to that, but it's true. What's going to make it better is, is the whole point. Mm. And I think if you don't have that, then what is it? Some dysfunctional fucking blame game where you go in and just say that record sucked because you hit the symbol too hard and the snare not hard enough? Like, where the fuck were you when that was happening? If you were sitting there listening to it, they don't even know what's coming through the speakers. You do. You have a privileged position. And using that to actually go in or ask them to come in or whatever you feel is appropriate as far as laying out this information in a way that's not going to just immediately set them off as the enemy, then what you've wound up with is a fucking collaboration. I don't care how you define, I don't care what word you put on it, you've wound up with a fucking collaborative moment in your life where you and that drummer have come together to get, to get it somewhere it wouldn't have been with just me or just you. That's a collaboration. Did you find you worked better once you admitted this to yourself or did you always, were you always aware of that? I'm probably projecting backwards. I'd like to think I was aware of it. I think what it is is un once I started to be able to transcend the tools, meaning I wasn't staring, you know, if I'm trying, if you and I are trying to go paint fucking, uh, a, a sunset right and you've come over here and i know that we can see it better at coney island than we can from my studio we're going to drive down there we're going to choose a couple of paint colors based on experience right we know there's going to be some reds yellows and oranges maybe something for the ocean because we can't just bring an infinite number of colors with us in the car and if i'm sitting there while the sun goes down staring at the tip of my damn brush i missed it you know, I absolutely missed it. It's a temporal thing. The band's energy is a temporal thing. It's, there's a time-based aspect to this of when you're going to get the best from someone. And that changes, of course, but there is a time that's better or worse. And so I think just finding my way through the tools allowed me to then look up and see that the sun was setting. And that's how I started to be able to get it on the canvas, you know, and, and it's interesting that randomly using that sunset, beating that sunset analogy to death even farther, the fact that every single one looks completely different, actually, and yet we would still choose the right colors when we jump in the car. I mean, that's, that's the thing, like, how do I know what that best time is for the drummer? It's after they've given me the sounds and before they start bitching that their ass hurts you know or it's like you know it's somewhere in that sweet spot between love and hate for the producer is probably going to be something where we're actually collaborating where you're not afraid to tell me we're out of the honeymoon period of we've just met and maybe you like two of the records i did or whatever the reason that you're here maybe is you know you're just going to be relatively polite on the first take and so it's like somewhere between that and just telling me to go fuck myself <laughs> is going to be something great should happen i mean that's such a like bro-y way to put it but you understand what i'm saying it's like it's it's absolutely like you're gonna you're gonna lose the fear of just saying like dude i know you asked me to move the fucking symbol but i keep fucking it up every time because of your stupid idea i hate you storm off then come back and possibly pay the best take of your life <laughs> 
you know, but with the symbol in the same place that I asked for, because if you move it back down, I'm going to go back out and talk about why better is like with it back up the two inches and that you really it's it's like then hit that one less and use a different symbol or whatever. We'll figure out another way around it. But the old habit isn't the way to make it great. You know, so it's a combination of knowing that telling your kid that they suck at math is never going to make them great at math, no matter what dads from the 50s thought. You know what I mean? It's like not being so fucking boomer about it that you just yell at people. You know, it's there is a way to guide people through towards better. That's not that's not some like, you know, my way or the highway type of shit. It's fucking collaborative. Even my way or the highway is collaborative, but it requires more of the people you're collaborating with to sort of bend to your will. But ultimately, you didn't go in and play it. You your version of collaboration just looks more like a dictatorship <laughs> and might be. Yeah. And people have gotten results that way. And people have fucking, I've said it before. There's, there's moments where people have responded that way to me. And I've said to my assistant, like you can fucking hate me all the way to the bank on this, you know, because I I'm so sure. Like if I step outside of, if I've proven to the band that I'm stepping outside of just ego based decision-making and I just fucking know that this is better through experience, like the cutting out of the lungs. It wasn't an ego-driven thing to tell you that cutting out your lungs will kill you. It's a fucking fact. And so removing <laughs> that subjectivity from the conversation and saying that bashing the symbol and barely hitting the snare isn't going to make this a hit. You know what I mean? That would be a mistake because I can't tell you it's going to be a hit, but I can tell you that it's removing its opportunity to be a hit. There's times where I describe it as production as just cutting the sandbags off of the hot air balloon. It's just not going to go as high with those connected to it. And I just go up and go snip and all of a sudden it goes as high as we hoped it would. And we see it rise on the charts literally, which is obviously where this comes from. And, and it's like all we did was cut off the things that were preventing it from going there. Mm -hmm. it, it had the form, the shape, the physics to do it. But it just was being held down. It was tethered in, in a way that it wouldn't make it to the place that the label or the band hoped it would go. I love that analogy. Yeah, it's amazing. When you are, you mentioned on how you how you work in that situation when you're in a position of working with people like say Elvis Costello or whatever. Are these things that are discussed before, or do they naturally occur? These things that like just uh, you know. Say that question one more time. I, I realized that the screen had gone dark, and I wanted to make sure I was recording. Oh, hello there. Because um, that analogy was good. <laughs> I wanted to make sure for me there. It knocked me off my chair a little bit. It really did. So when you're in these collaborative situations with people like Elvis Costello et al., are these like discussions you will have beforehand, or do they occur naturally? These collaborations. I think, weirdly, the 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 greater the stature of the person that I'm working with, like an Aaron Neville or an Elvis Costello, let's say, you know, going in the room, we have their entire history recorded in the literal sense. So I know the ones that gave me the chills that they recorded 15 years ago. So I've already got kind of a benchmark, you know, like what more of a benchmark could there be than, than you know, 
pick your favorite Elvis Costello song or the one that did the best or whatever. It's like having that be something that we then gauge. Like, am I getting the chills from this one the way I did from that one when I was 12? You know, like with these legacy artists. I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing. So weirdly, I think we walk in the room carrying pre-production in our hearts it's inferred that like we're we have a goal there and they've been through the process i've been through the process enough times that we kind of know the expectation and then from there there's more of an organic evolution of the relationship meaning when i went in elvis and i started off we did a cover of um the song beautiful uh, the Christina Aguilera, but written by Linda Perry song, Beautiful. We did a cover of that for uh, that show, House, the doctor show, House. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, I did that session up at Avatar. So we're in the A room, just the two of us. We're in this gigantic, legendary room, just the two of us up there. And he comes in like perfectly dressed, of course, you know. I'm not going to do his accent <laughs> to you guys. I'll go on. And he comes in though. <laughs> He comes in and, and he's like, do you know the song Beautiful? You know, and uh, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've been to the supermarket. So, of course, it was like it was freaking everywhere at that point. You know, it was like, a, you know, every, in an elevator. And so basically, though, he's got this like I, little iPod shuffle or something small, like in his jacket pocket. And he pulls out one earbud and gives it to me and he takes the other earbud and we're like sitting next to each other like this. And I was like, this is not how I fucking thought this day was going to start. You know, we're like a teen couple on the subway sharing earbuds, listening to some like Christina Aguilera song together. And, uh, and so we wind up, you know, doing all this programming. He has me doing this programming of samples of Badal Roy, this tabla player that's on uh, like, miles davis records he's on rainbow bridge you know Jimi hendrix like that that era like badal was on all this stuff and i'd recorded a record with badal and i asked him if he would just like play some freeform stuff for me to kind of use as grooves and loops because we had established a relationship that was good enough for that and uh so i'm like programming all this stuff and then i'm like man this should be kind of you know this could be a bit grittier and he's like well and, and then Elvis tells me that that's why I was here because he heard the Tom Waits collaborative song with Sparkle Horse and he wanted me to do these like giant dumpster robot sound or use something like that, like professional garbage or something that I was sort of like, thank you. And, and uh, you know, and so we had to make it feel like this sort of churning, rusty machinery, but out of tabla and like a distorted 808 and, you know, a few other things that I was programming. And then we brought in a couple rental chillests that we were trying to find the one that was the wrongest, you know? So it was one that was kind of concert pitch and slightly weird, old, really old one that must have been like A equals something other than 440. So it was just bizarre. And so everything was a bit sour because I brought up, I can't help but produce. And I don't mean that with ego, like meaning if I go to the visual analogy with someone and I just happened to say to him, I was like, well, wouldn't it be amazing if we could sort of cast you like the charming Lucifer character in something like, you know, something wicked this way comes the sort of because I looked at him and he's like perfectly dressed. And every time he was singing that you are beautiful line in the scratch vocal, it kind of felt almost sarcastic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it, it or, or that he had an agenda other than just what the song's lyrics, you know, it, it really felt like there was an ulterior motive there. 
And I was like, fuck framing this in this sort of like destruction and sounds of these like that 808 really distorted. I don't know if you've ever heard this track. I you should check it out though if now. you can now, you know, like, so, it, you know, it's on the Fox or the, excuse me, the House MD soundtrack is where it came out. But, but so anyway, that one, looking at the frame, it's like one thing begets the next to use a pompous biblical term, you know, it's like we sort of one move would beget the next. And so hearing this distorted 808 and then Elvis starting to say, you are beautiful over it. It sounded like he was looking at you with <laughs> hate in his eyes. Like, aren't you beautiful? You know, like, or, or that he was like trying to get you in a creepy way to like come into the van <laughs> from the playground. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't say that about him, but so it was sort of more, you know, but th there was some sort of creepy motive behind it. Like he's trying to steal your soul. And then I found out that ultimately it's like if you just get your ego out of the way and you read these cues, it's amazing how much you 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 feel like a sideshow psychic sort of guessing things based on people's outfit and the way they carry themselves and the people they walked in with, you know, and it's like this just bullshit pretending to be a psychic thing. But but casting him in that way the the tv show the the music producer for it was so glad because they were going to use it in a show about a teenage girl where they were going to use the christina aguilera version and play that when they show her basically and then when they show house the actual doctor they were going to use this one where it's the sort of grizzled old version of it but that it it was actually that it was supposed to sound more world weary or like there's some other motive behind it you know like sort of deconstructing what that song means in general instead of just the video Christina Aguilera Disney version of it. And so again, it's like literally taking every detail in mind, you know, into account when, when deciding these things, like what he had on. If the kid comes in with a Metallica shirt on that they've cut the sleeves off of, are you like, we're definitely going to hire a string quartet, right? You know, like, obviously not. So, again, it's it's that. And then coupled with the story that they tell you, not the in the literal sense, but in the way they deliver the lyric. The lyric can be about hating someone and they sing it like a love song. And it's almost comedy. It becomes spinal tap at that moment. You know, it's called suck my love pump or whatever the hell that stupid joke that always gets referred to is in a ballad, you know. And the reason that's funny is because our expectation from these beautiful chords laid out on a piano obviously is not that it's called suck my love pump, <laughs> you know. And the but the the inverse is true. We can absolutely use that to our advantage. When I say that people, you know, when, they're, when we're prioritizing and that we're going to make three things the loudest in the mix, let's say, <clears throat> and everything else has to be sort of the context or the frame or the lighting or however you would look at it, the, the way I finally figured out to describe that to a band is what is it about the song that a comedy show would parody? Because that's the fucking hook. Like if it's Billy Jean and you go ba bo ba ba da 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 da, even if you start rapping with a British accent about the four food groups and eating healthy, people would know that that's a joke based on a parody of Billy Jean. In one move, so Quincy's fucking creaseless trousers obviously worked out that day because that one move gives us Billy Jean. I only had to sing it shittily at you. 
for you to understand what I was talking about. And so if we were going to make a parody of like the rock song that we're working on, I want songs that it's easy to figure out what the joke would be about it. Because that means we're sticking our necks out far enough that it matters to the world. How well do you rate Hugh Laurie's accent, the American accent in house? <laughs> oh, it's great. It's perfect. And it's perfectly labored. I think it's good that they gave him a limp because he sort of sounds like he's on painkillers anyway. You know, so again, they, they shift the context there. If you look like you haven't shaved, you're always hung over and you're taking pills, then your fucking accent can be whatever you want it to be because you're on pills. Do you think it's better or worse than your Elvis Costello accent? Oh, it's much better. Mine is just absolute shit. My assistant who's working with me is, is from just outside London, so I, I'll, I'll ask him as well. It's worth noting you cast the Englishman as the baddie there as well. Always a good thing to do. Oh, yeah, of course. Hey, there's a reason I threw that fucking tea in the harbor, buddy. Joel, you've been incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank it's you been guys. amazing. Seriously, I, I hope you can cut this down to something that makes sense to anybody. <laughs> no, I'm glad, though, and I appreciate, I do appreciate you asking. It's fun, and, uh, and I'm glad to have the opportunity. So. I'm really pleased we didn't even talk tech. We didn't talk techniques hardly. Hardly a bunch of mics. Look at all that juicy thing behind you. We didn't even didn't even bring it up. Um, I love and that. You can, I mean, you know. Here, look. Ready? Here's the... the t we can move. Like the, the laptop was on the SSL. Just resting on the SSL, getting nudged by a fader. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, you know, this is all the crap that I went up using. This is just the A room. There's There's... A through D right now, or A through E right now, and we're building F because wow. we've taken over the whole building here. And um, basically, it's like it feels amazing because none of us inherited anything. None of us, you know, won the lottery. So every single one of these things, um, I, I should be recording this, I guess, but every single one of these things came from doing music amazing you know i mean absolutely and and that's that's something that for me again it reads in kind of the texture of how we do things when people come to record here at studio g i mean that sounded like an ad and i didn't mean it to but <laughs> it's really true when people come in through the doors here at the studio i feel like every detail says we're going to be creative you know we we that that it matters that you're here again the mint on the pillow man but it reads in the like keyboard and amp selection and all of that stuff so incredible See, here's and here's and here's mike who just arrived hello mike hey mike where are you guys physically sitting right now we're both in liverpool are you both in liverpool both in liverpool yeah home of the ruttles yeah <laughs> i'm one of those fancy southerners from essex oh really ah. you've come a long way Hmm. Well, have a good session, Mike. <laughs> I have doubt. So anyway, listen. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. All right. So we're going to chav it up in here now. And uh, I'm glad to talk to you guys. And I appreciate it. And stay in touch in general. Bye. <laughs>